الحمد لله رب العالمين الرحمن الرحيم مالك يوم الدين إياك نعبد وإياك نستعين اهدنا الصراط المستقيم صراط الذين أنعمت عليهم غير المغضوب عليهم ولا الضالين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رحم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه والتابعين ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد we praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We send complete blessings and salutations upon Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless him and his entire household. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all his companions. And may he bless every single one of us and grant us goodness and ease. Amen. Beloved brothers and sisters, we thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving us this opportunity to gather in one of his houses. For indeed with the cold spell that we are facing in this part of the world, mashallah, and the snow that we've heard of in most of the country or parts of the country today, Wallahi, for every moment that we bear this, it is indeed a means of elevation of our status. And by the will of Allah, we should be grateful. There are others in other parts of the world who have extremely long fasts. And at the same time, they have the heat of summer on top of it. May Allah make it easy for them as well. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us all acceptance, every single category. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open our doors. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and the battle of Uhud. We had made mention of how the battle took a turn when the Muslims were sandwiched between the little platoon of Khalid ibn al-Walid radiallahu anhu. At that time he was not yet a Muslim, he was part of the Mushrik army and the army of Makkah on the other side. And they suffered great losses and we had made mention of that in quite a bit of detail yesterday. A point that came to my mind which I felt would have been of interest was as I had said previously regarding the Battle of Badr, every war, the Prophet ﷺ vetted the people who took part in the war one by one. And he studied their cases. Most of them he would have known them, so it wouldn't require more than a split second. But some of the cases he would ask them questions and thereafter send them back or allow them to join the army. From amongst them were two youngsters. They wanted to take part in the Battle of Uhud. Samurat ibn, in fact, Rafi ibn Khadij and Samurat ibn Jundub radiallahu anhuma. Two young people in their teenage at the time. And uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was sending both of them back, but he was told that Rafi ibn Khadij radiallahu anhu was very good at his arrows. He could aim very well and he was really, really good uh, in his aiming. So the Prophet sallallahu decided to take him with. And at this point, Samurah ibn Jundub radiallahu anhu, who saw that his friend was going and he was being chased back, he began to cry. And he says to his stepfather that, you know, this person, meaning this person, the other companion is gone. And yet, if the two of us had to fight now, I would out wrestle him. If we had to wrestle, I would put him on the ground in a minute. So when this news got to Rasulullah sallallahu he called him back. He says, okay, here's the two of you. Let's see who can wrestle who. And do you know what? Subhanallah. Samurat ibn Jundub in no time put Rafi ibn Khadij on the floor. Subhanallah. And so the Prophet ﷺ allowed them both to take part in this battle of Uhud. Subhanallah. Look at how beautiful it was. In front of him, he told him, you can wrestle the two of you. Whoever out wrestles or if you out wrestle him, you will come as it is. He was already written from amongst those who was meant to go. So that was a very interesting story. Uh, thereafter, the battle took place and as we know, when the uh, Muslims were sandwiched, they suffered great losses and at the same time, the Kuffar of Quraysh were shocked at the courage of the Muslims. They were some of the heroes of the battle of Uhud. And some of these heroes, we have to make mention of Sayyid al-Shuhada, who was Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu, although he had not been alive to witness the end of that battle but he was one of the first who was actually martyred and the killer or the one who killed him was known as Wahshi. This Wahshi we will speak about him in a few minutes but the others who were heroes 
Talha ibn Ubaidillah radiyallahu anhu. He personally stood around Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and took so many spears and arrows in order to defend Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is why in one narration, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, if we were to say whose day this was, we could comfortably say this was the day of Talha ibn Ubaidillah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant him Jannah radiyallahu anhu wa anil jameer. Uh, the other heroes of this particular war, Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu, we spoke about him yesterday in a little bit of detail and we made mention of how he held the flag up with one hand when they had uh, cut his hand off, he then held it with the other hand and thereafter when they had slit the other hand, he then held it close to his chest with the remainder of his hand. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness. He was uh, on that day also martyred. Another one was Sahl ibn Hunayf and Abu Dujana. Sahl ibn Hunayf was also a warrior who had really engaged in much in, on that particular day and then he lost his life, he was martyred. And as for Abu Dujana, he was a warrior of note. He was a man who used to wear a red little rope on his head. He had a red band on his head that he used to wear when he was very, very upset and when he was serious in war. And so this Abu Dujana, the Prophet ﷺ lifted his own sword and said, who will take the sword with its right? And the people wanted it, some of the Sahaba wanted it. He did not give anyone, but when Abu Dujana requested it, he was granted that particular sword and he asked, what is its right? So the Prophet ﷺ informed him that you should make use of it right to the end. And very, very true, this man was seen not only by Rasulullah but even by the other companions on that particular day, up and down, subhanallah. And he really defended Islam and the Muslims in a very big way until he himself was martyred. Rasulullah says, the way he is walking, the way he is walking through the lines of the enemy, you know that haughtiness that he is walking with, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not like that haughtiness except in this particular instance, in the instance of war. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness and may he make us from those who understand. Also, the angels took part in this particular battle as well. And remember, the, there is a hadith of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu reported in Sahih al-Bukhari where he says that I remember seeing people in white whom I had not known taking part in this battle. Later, the Prophet says that was Jibreel and Mikael. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us protection. One might ask, why was there no decisive victory for the Muslims if the angels were also there? Very simple answer, because they did not follow instructions. They did not obey the messenger. They disobeyed the instruction of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And in our lives, let's remember one thing. Wherever we have disobeyed Allah, and wherever we have disobeyed the Rasul of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we will then be suffering some form of a loss either in the near future or later on, unless we repent before it comes to us. Allah does us a favor. In a lot of instances, we are given some reprieve, some time. You know, a person is transgressing, they go against the commands of Allah, Allah gives them some time. And after they are given, perhaps sometimes a few days, sometimes a few years, sometimes a longer time, and the person continues transgressing, one day when the rope is pulled, it is pulled completely. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not do that to us and may He not punish us. But if we have repented before the punishment comes, perhaps it will be diverted by the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted something to happen on that day and that was a lesson for them. There was no other battle after this where they had suffered this type of humiliation. Always after this, there was some form of victory or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had opened their doors even without a battle in some cases. But in this particular case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to strengthen them to say you should obey instruction and it is only through the obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you will achieve success in this dunya, in this world, as well as in the life after death. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam cried when he saw his uncle Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. What they had done was mutilated the bodies of a lot of those who were martyred on that day. And astaghfirullah, they brought with them their women in order to do that. 
So Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib, Sayyidu Shuhada, the leader of the martyrs, he, radiyallahu anhu, was mutilated by a woman known as Hind binti Utbah. Because Utbah was one of those who was killed by Hamza in the battle of Badr, this woman was not at all comfortable until she slit his belly. Allahu Akbar, Allah safeguard us, removed his liver and actually chewed on it. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from this type of gruesome behavior and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us an understanding. The Prophet said very clearly, Muslims do not mutilate. You neither mutilate your body whilst you're alive. And this is why permanent tattooing and so on is all prohibited in Islam. To pierce yourself in different places besides the ears and perhaps the nose, after that is not permissible in the Sharia. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from mutilating our own bodies. And may he make us understand what is mutilation in the first place. Because many people don't know this body is entrusted to us by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's going to take it back and he's going to ask us how did we look after it and protect it? How can we say, okay, I made a hole here and a hole there and a hole there and this may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us and safeguard us. We've only spoken about something very light, but believe me, the Sharia has deep laws which would actually result if we followed them in our success in this world as well as in the next. May Allah make it easy for us. And this is why Safiya binti Abdul Muttalib, the sister of Hamza radiallahu anhu, she wanted to see the body of her own brother. Now there was a rule that was passed by Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Don't let the women come and see the bodies of their own relatives. Why? Because those who are mutilated, they may go back with a very different image of this person. It is best that they go with the image they recall. And this is why the Prophet ﷺ told them, take Safiya back and do not let her look at her brother. It may hurt her heart emotionally and so on. And the picture that remains, the image that remains in the mind will always be that of someone totally mutilated. But Safiya was one exception. She spoke to the Prophet ﷺ and said, Oh Messenger, I will bear patience. I will make dua. I will not be emotional and start screaming and yelling and so on. But I need to see my brother. And so for her, permission was granted. But we learn a lesson that sometimes when a death happens and it is not so uh, good to the eye, it is definitely an Islamic ruling to stop some of the family members from looking at that particular face. If perhaps it is heavily injured or mutilated and sometimes perhaps in a few pieces, say after a car crash or so on, may Allah protect us. Sometimes you have instances where the faces or the head is actually uh, broken into pieces. May Allah safeguard us. It is not wrong for the ulama to get up and family members to say, look, the women folk, you will not be allowed to view the face of this particular person. This is from the teaching of Rasulullah It is best for them to have the last good image within their minds than to have an image which will remain forever and ever. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all and grant us goodness. As for Wahshi, that man, he reports that when I killed Hamza radiallahu anhu, immediately something struck me. I knew I was going to be a free man as per the promise of Jubair ibn Mut'im who was my master. And at the same time, I felt enslaved by something else. I felt captured by something far greater than the enslaving that I was in. And he says to the degree that when I was free, I was back in Mecca. But I couldn't do anything. I could not sleep in the night. I constantly thought of this deed that I had engaged in and I became a drunkard. He says, I became a drunkard so much so that I was neither fit for living nor for the dead. And there came a degree when a time when the Prophet ﷺ marched onto Makkah al-Mukarramah with his army. He says, I was too embarrassed. I left and I went to Ta'if. And I spent some time there until after the victory of Makkah. The Prophet ﷺ sent for me and I came to Makkah al-Mukarramah from Ta'if. And he says, when I saw the Prophet ﷺ, he asked me, Anta Are you Wahshi? Are you the killer of my uncle Hamza? And Hamza was the uncle and at the same time he was a foster brother of Rasulullah ﷺ. So he says, yes. So although Wahshi became a Muslim, the Prophet ﷺ made one request to him. He says, look, if you can stay away from me as far as possible, every time I see you, I remember my uncle. Subhanallah. 
May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. This was one thing. And this is why Wahshi, he says, I lived and I was so indebted to what had happened because I felt so bad until after Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I heard of Musaylama al-Kadhab, the liar who claimed prophethood, Musaylama. He says, and I made a dua to Allah, Ya Allah, I'm joining the army who is going to see this man and attack him. And Allah, make me from amongst those who can execute that liar. And indeed, Allah granted him that. And this is when he felt a little bit at ease when he was used to execute Musaylama al-Kadhab, the liar who had claimed prophethood when the Muslims had gone there to attack him with his army. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us protection. So this was Wahshi. Then comes the burial of those who had died in the battle of Uhud. There were approximately 70 Muslims who had been martyred in the battle of Uhud. Most of them were from the Ansar. And the Prophet asked, who has memorized more Quran? The one who memorized more Quran was put into the grave first. And each grave had more than one person. Some of them two, some of them three, depending on what was available. Because they could not dig so many graves. And this is why in the Sharia, the grave that you are buried in, we in Islam allow for burial in the same spot some time later. Because once the body has decomposed into the soil, it is now fit for reburial. In our parts of the world, this doesn't happen because I think in most cases you purchase the little piece of land, it becomes yours. But where the maqbara or where the graveyard is waqf, it is an endowment. You find that there is no harm in burying again and again in the same place, perhaps a year, two years, nine years, ten years later, as happens even in Baqir, the graveyard of Madinatul Munawwara. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding. So when they were burying, they found a lot of these poor people. Some of them were martyrs in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after having fought and served Islam for a long time, such as Musab ibn Umair, when he was brought to be buried, there was nothing to cover him. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa issued an instruction. All those who were martyred, there is no washing for them, no ghusl for them. They should be buried in their clothing with the stains of blood. They will be resurrected on the day of Qiyamah. The color will be the color of blood and the smell will be the smell of musk. This is what Rasulullah had said. But Mus'ab ibn Umair, when they covered his head, his feet showed. When they covered his feet, his head showed. So they did not have enough to cover him. And the Prophet makes mention of something very, very interesting. He says, this was one of the richest of the youngsters of Mecca. And today there is nothing to cover him. And he has passed away in this condition. From amongst the believers, there are those who have fulfilled their promise unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of them have been martyred and the others are in waiting. Allahu Akbar. Some of them have been martyred and the others have been waiting. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, Hamza mimman qada nahbah. Mus'ab mimman qada nahbah. He took names of people. These are the people who have been martyred, fulfilling their promise unto Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Mus'ab ibn Umair, the Prophet says, cover his head. And as for his feet, you can use a bit of the idhkhir, a little bit of a, a branch that you can actually cover it with. And that is how he was buried. One narration in Zadul Ma'ad makes mention of Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib with a similar condition. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding. Remember, what comes with us in the grave is our deeds, not our wealth and not what we look like. But what comes into our graves, our deeds. So let us do the best of deeds before it is too late and prepare for the day when we will pass away and meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. On their return, Hamna binti Jahsh radiallahu anha, she was told that your brother has been martyred. Abdullah ibn Jahsh has been martyred. So she made a dua for him and she said, May Allah grant us the patience. Then she was told, your uncle has also been martyred, Hamza ibn Abdul Muttalib. She made a dua for him. And 
she, she was patient. Then she was told, and your husband has also been martyred, Mus'ab ibn Umayr. Then she yelled. She let out a little bit of a scream. Then she also made the dua and so on. And the Prophet ﷺ immediately said, the husband is closer to the heart than the brothers and the uncles. Subhanallah. This is the heart of a woman. If we are true husbands, our wives become closer to us than they are to their own family members. Because we become the new family and their children become the new blood. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding. Look at Musab ibn Umair. What a powerful man he was. He was such a gentleman, such a sahabi. He was lost or martyred in the battle of Uhud. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant him Jannah. Then there is a woman, a famous woman. Her name is not mentioned, but she is a woman from Banu Dinar. They told her, your husband is martyred, your brother is martyred, and your father is martyred. All three of them. She said, what about the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? What about the Prophet? They said, no, he is fine, he is okay. She said, no, where is he? I would like to look at him. I want to see him. And then they waited for a moment until he came through. When she saw him, she smiled and said, Kullu musibatim ba'dahu hayyina. All difficulties after this are easy. If he is okay, everything else is fine. Subhanallah. This was the response of the Sahabiyat at the time. They were more concerned about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam than their own family members. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless them. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness with us. We sometimes become more concerned about sinning than we are about our link with our own maker and our link with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. This was not an issue of sinning. If she had cried or if she had wept or if something else had happened in terms of her tears and so on, it wouldn't have been bad. She was worried. Ma fa'ala Rasulullah. First question, leave all that. Tell me about the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. When they told her, he is okay. She said, I want to see him. As soon as she saw him, she says, Kullu musibatim ba'dahu hayyina. All difficulties after this, they are easy, they are light. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us ease. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam made dua for the families of those who were martyred on that particular day. And Allahu Akbar, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum who had remained behind, they ensured that they looked after the widows and the orphans. And a lot of these widows were married by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum who were left in order to look after them. So much so that even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam later on married and we will get to that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us an understanding. They had to look after these women who were left behind. They had to look after the children who were left behind. And the best way to do so was to marry this widow in order for the children to be looked after and for the widow to have some male who will then look after her and be her guardian. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us an understanding. Now, what had happened is this was on the seventh day of Shawwal, according to most of the narrations. And they had gone back to Medina Munawwara. They spent the night there and they were, they were waiting because the kuffar had left. They wanted to enter Medina, but Allah had made them go away because they were worried that if we enter Medina, there are so many warriors in Medina who have not taken part in this battle. They might get up and they will attack us once again and we might suffer big losses. So what happened is they had left. After they left, they got to a certain place and they decided or they were still deciding. Abu Sufyan was saying, let's go back. We want to go back and we want to attack Medina. And Safwan ibn Umayyah, he says, no, don't go. He was a very intelligent man. He says, you see, at the moment, we can consider ourselves victorious. Why should we go and get a hiding? Why should we go back there and risk getting or suffering loss? Subhanallah. So he said, we're not going to go back. However, the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was already instructed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Seventh of Shawwal, they came back. They had injuries. Some of those injured were still in Medina and so on. He prepared an army the next day. And he said, we need to leave. We need to go out so that these people don't come into Medina Munawwara. If they come into Medina, we're going to have a problem. We're going to have to fight them here on our streets. Meaning in our own suburbs. Rather, we go out. So, Hamra ul-Asad. 
is a place that they got to the following day. The Prophet sallallahu on the 8th of Shawwal went with only those companions who took part in the battle besides one or two who were granted permission to join them. And thereafter they went to Hamra al-Asad and the Mushriks had heard the news that these people have camped out there. And this was also a means of showing them that no matter what has happened, Allahu Akbar, we are still ready to defend ourselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, don't become slack in pursuit of these people. Continue pursuing them. Allah says, if you are suffering pain and injuries, you should know that they too are suffering pain and injuries. But the difference between you and them is you have hope in Allah. They don't have hope in anything. Allahu Akbar. So Allah says, go and pursue them. And these people went to Hamra al-Asad. They spent some time there and they came back to uh, Madinatul Munawwara. Uh, another verse that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made mention of, which is very important. Also teaching the Muslims how their, their morale should be high at all times. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Qul, say to them, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Hal tarabbasuna bina illa ihda al-husnayayn? Are you waiting for anything to happen with us besides the two points of goodness? Nothing can happen to us besides goodness. We will either be martyred, so we will get paradise, or we will either be victorious, so we will have victory here. So it's either victory here or victory there. It's called Ihdal Husnayain. One of the two good things can happen to us. We can never suffer a loss. We are always in a win-win situation. This is what the Quran says. And as for you, we are waiting. We are waiting for what? We are waiting for Allah to punish you. Either He punishes you on His own or He punishes you with our hands. Which means if you are victorious, Allah will still get hold of you. And if we are victorious, Allah has punished you with our hands. So wait, we are waiting with you. Subhanallah. So they are in a lose-lose situation if we can coin that term quickly. And we are in a win-win situation. MashaAllah. So this was a verse of the Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, had revealed, boosting the morale of the believers. And it is an understanding for all of us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness. The final lesson I want to draw which I've already made mention of, but once again, we need to say that two things that happened on that particular day resulted in the suffering of the Muslims. One was a tanazu, tanazu meaning debate and arguing amongst each other, disunity, you know, arguing, let's do this, no, let's do that. Because the Muslims on more than one occasion, they were arguing and debating, should we do this, should we do that, shouldn't we do this, perhaps we should do this, we should do that, that resulted in loss. So with us, if we disunite and if we disintegrate and if we create petty issues between us, Wallahi, we will suffer a loss. The Quran says, The kuffar are protectors of one another. No matter who they are, where they are, they will always stand up for one another. That's what the Quran says. If you are not going to do exactly the same, there is going to be great facade, corruption, and great fitna on earth. What is meant by exactly the same? In the same way the kuffar stand up for one another, no matter where they are, who they are. You as Muslimin need to stand up for one another, no matter where you are, who you are. Solution, subhanallah. If we had to adopt just that one ayah today on the globe, the problems of the globe would be resolved instantly. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us unity. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open our doors. Part of the plot of shaitan, small item, I hate you, I don't talk to you, you're not a Muslim, you're actually a kafir, astaghfirullah. Those are the statements we hear these days. People calling other Muslims non-Muslims. Why don't we realize that that only serves 
the interests of the enemy. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us all and grant us ease and goodness. So that was a point. The second point, we've already spoken about it. Never go against the instruction of Allah and His Rasul. You cannot achieve happiness through the displeasure of the owner of happiness. You cannot achieve happiness through the displeasure of the owner of happiness. You cannot. You cannot achieve sustenance or a happy home through the owner of sustenance and the owner of happiness in your home. The only way to get health and happiness and contentment and goodness and sustenance is through the one who owns it by obeying him and by becoming closer to him. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open our doors. In the third year of Hijrah, the same year that this battle of Uhud took place, the Prophet married the daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab who was the widow of Khunais ibn Hudhafa, a Sahmi. And this man had been injured in the Battle of Badr. According to the most correct narrations, he was injured in the Battle of Badr and later on he passed away. And listen to what happened. Umar ibn al-Khattab he went to Uthman ibn Affan anhu. He says, Ya Uthman, my daughter Hafsa, I want you to marry her. Look at this. A man coming to his friend and saying, I would like you to marry my daughter, the widow of Khunais. So he looks at Umar ibn al-Khattab and he says, look, I have no intention to get married right now. Answer. Which means he came out of it in a beautiful way. And then he went to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq Ya Abu Bakr, I'd like you to marry my daughter Hafsa, the widow of Khunais. Abu Bakr was silent, no response, no answer. And he went away. And Umar ibn al-Khattab felt that why didn't I get a reply from this man? At least he should have been like Uthman and said somehow, no, you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness. Today, people feel bad when someone says no. We feel bad, so bad that we stop talking to people. Wallahi, it's your right, be happy. Perhaps your sustenance was not written there. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness. So now, some days later, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam proposed to marry the daughter of Umar ibn al-Khattab He was so happy and he agreed immediately the nikah was done and later on Abu Bakr as-Siddiq comes to him and says, Oh Umar, he says, yes. He says, perhaps your heart was hurt that I was quiet when you asked me to marry your daughter. He says, yes, I was expecting some, some form of a reply. He says, the only reason why I was silent was the Prophet mentioned your daughter and I didn't want to release his secret to tell you that you know what, let the Prophet marry her. So I just remained silent. I knew something you didn't know and I didn't want to release it. So he was silent. The clarification, subhanAllah. Because the Prophet was concerned about the widows of the Ummah. Today, where are the people who are concerned about the widows of the Ummah? Forget about getting married to them. That's one thing. But not even rendering assistance to them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Those were the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. And that was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And the Sahaba, look at Umar ibn al-Khattab. What a lesson we learn from him. He went out actively telling people, look, I want you to marry my daughter. How many of us would do that today? We have the shackles of culture. And our daughters and sisters are sitting at home because they are cursed by the curse of culture. So they are not married because it's our fault, not theirs. We did not get up, stand up and look at the young men who come to the masjid. MashaAllah, brother, are you married? You're not married. Who is your father? I'd like to speak to him. You know, I've got a daughter. Who's going to know you've got a daughter? Today they have a policy. Let your daughter be naked and go to the mall and everywhere else and go to another person's wedding when she's half dressed so that other people can see her and say, wow, she's so beautiful. I've got a son. The, the seed that is sown is the seed of haram. The seed of shaitan. And then we want to get married. In five minutes, there is a talaq and a divorce and we're back home because we did it the wrong way. Where are the men? Forget about your culture. It is wrong. It is totally in the bin, subhanallah. Wallahi, we suffer because we have left Islam. And that's a fact. And I'm saying it, I have pressed a red button because it's a fact. There are so many of our sisters and, and, and daughters who are suffering out there. And we as men could not even be bothered. We have so many people we meet on a daily basis who are potential husbands for them. And we wouldn't talk because why? Our culture says a woman must sit at home and wait for the ceiling to open up and a proposal drops from the top. May Allah protect us. What's that? 
Why can't we throw that away? Look at Umar. He was better than me and you. He is one of those in Jannah. And he goes to his friends and he goes to the others and say, please marry my daughter. Would you marry my daughter? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding. As I said, it's a point to learn. It's about time we made mention of this. There is nothing wrong. In Islam, the proposal can come from either side. The men or the woman, either side. Either can show the interest and there is nothing wrong. People think, no, you see, if we go out, then it's like our daughter is inferior. Perhaps if they were to come, then we can say, we gave you our daughter after you asked for it. Wallahi, all this is culture that does not bring about happiness or sadness. It's got nothing to do with Islam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us an understanding. So this was the marriage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Thereafter, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam married another woman. Her name was Zainab binti Khuzayma, also a widow. And this widow, subhanallah, she was either the widow of Abdullah ibn Jahsh. If that was the case, he was killed in Uhud. He was martyred in Uhud. And or she was, according to some of the authentic narrations, the widow of Ubaidullah ibn al-Harith, who was martyred, the first martyr on the day of Badr. His name was Ubaidullah ibn al-Harith. The more authentic narrations point to Ubaidullah ibn al-Harith because the Prophet married Zainab binti Khuzayma in Ramadan. And if that was the case, the battle of Uhud had not yet taken place. So it couldn't have been Abdullah ibn Jahsh because he was only martyred during the battle of Uhud. So it was Ubaidullah ibn al-Harith and the Prophet proposed for her. She was known as Ummul Masakin. And these women were people who had served Islam from Mecca. And they were people who had served Islam in a huge way. And they were people who had lost their family members. They needed someone as their guardian. And the Prophet ﷺ got up and he showed, laid the example. He proposed for her, Ummul Masakin, the mother of the poor. She used to go and help the poor at all times. And she was a very, very generous person, even though she did not have much of her own. The Prophet ﷺ married her, but the marriage only lasted eight months because she passed away. May Allah be pleased with her. So this was the second wife of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam to pass away. The first one was Khadija binti Khuwaylid radiallahu anha. The second one was Zainab binti Khuzayma radiallahu anha. She was only married eight months and thereafter she passed away. As we said, she was the widow. Uh, she was a widow. In the same year, something very interesting, a gift of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Al-Hasan ibn Ali radiallahu anhu was born. And this was the grandchild of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, most beloved to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the son of Fatima binti Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and Ali ibn Abi Talib radiallahu anhu. Then also, the same year, the third year of Hijrah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the final verses which made alcohol and intoxicants completely prohibited. Now, we pause for a moment. The people of Mecca used to drink a lot. They used to trade in alcohol. Even the people of Medina, they used to drink a lot and trade in alcohol. When we say drunkards, the people used to drink so much that they used to fight. And they used to fight so much that it used to result in so many other difficulties and problems later on when they were sober. So much so that they were drunkards, they used to take alcohol and women out to the wars. As we saw Battle of Badr, Battle of Uhud, these people brought large amounts of alcohol. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala safeguard us. So the Prophet was given a verse. They asked a question, what is the ruling? What is the ruling on alcohol and gambling? What is the ruling on alcohol and gambling? So Allah says, يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْخَمْرِ وَالْمَيْسِرِ Oh Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, they are asking you about alcohol and gambling. Why were they asking? They were asking because people like Abu Bakr knew already that this is bad. If it wasn't bad, they wouldn't have asked. Nobody asks me or asks you, can I wear a jacket? It's freezing today, subhanallah. You'd be wearing the jacket. It's not bad. But now someone can say, no, this is pig skin. Can I wear it? Because automatically something tells you I need to ask a question here. There's something wrong with it, perhaps. So that's why they knew that it causes so much problem. Alcohol and gambling causes so much problem. They asked. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, instead of banning it all at once, making it difficult sometimes for a person who is addicted to it. Had it happened, it would have happened. But 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ وَإِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُ مِنْ نَفْعِهِمَا Tell them, there is a great sin, a great sin in alcohol and gambling, but there is also a little bit of benefit. But the sin outweighs the benefit, and there is much more sin than benefit, harm. Much more harm than benefit. So from this, a lot of the companions understood if there is more harm than benefit, we need to stay away from it. So they started staying away from it. Those who were drinking started cutting down and so on. People like Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, the narrations make mention of the fact that he never ever drunk, even before Islam. He knew that this thing is bad. Like Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, never went close to it by the protection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what had happened thereafter is after some time, People used to drink and then when they're in salah, they didn't know what they were saying. So they would make mistakes. Now that is dangerous because it's the word of Allah, the Quran. So Allah says, after some time, another verse was revealed. Ya amanu la salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taqulun. O you who believe, do not come close to salah and prayer in the condition of intoxication until you know exactly what you are uttering. So as a result, what happened? The hours of drinking were cut down. So they couldn't drink most of the time. They could only drink perhaps after Isha for a little while because they would have to get up for Fajr and perhaps in the morning. And in the morning, one wonders who would be drinking. So in the afternoon, they wouldn't be able to drink because you have Salatul Asr. After Asr, you have Maghrib, which is not very far. And after that, you have Isha. So the only time was after Isha, and that too, very few people would drink. Until in the third year of Hijrah, the verse came down. Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, O you who believe. Innama al-khamru wal-maysiru wal-ansabu wal-azlamu rijisum min amal shaytan Fajtanibuhu la'allakum tuflihun. O you who believe, indeed, intoxicants, as well as gambling, as well as superstition. And ansab is what they used to do. They used to sacrifice some animals in a specific way, which became prohibited. So the superstitions, as well as the ansab, aslam, and alcohol and drinking, this is abomination from the handiwork of the devil. So stay far from it in order that you may succeed. That became prohibited. It became prohibited. Some people say, where is the prohibition of alcohol in the Quran? If Allah tells you stay far from it, it means it is worse than the ordinary sin. Just like adultery, Allah says, Wala zina. Don't even go close to it. That doesn't mean it's not prohibited. It means even to get close to it is prohibited. So the same applies here that it is so bad, stay very far from it. Then Allah says, إِنَّمَا يُرِيدُ الشَّيْطَانُ أَن يُوقِعَ بَيْنَكُمُ الْعَدَاوَةَ وَالْبَغْضَاءَ فِي الْخَمْرِ وَالْمَيْسِرِ Indeed, shaitan wants to create enmity and hatred between you in alcohol and gambling. Through alcohol and gambling, there is enmity, there is hatred, there is problem, there is war. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ مُنْتَهُونَ The verse continues that shaitan intends to distract you from salah and the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So are you going to leave it? That's a question. When this verse was revealed, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had read it. The caller went out calling people, أَلَا إِنَّ الْخَمْرَ قَدْ حُرِّمُ He called out, behold, alcohol has been made prohibited. Alcohol has been made prohibited. It is reported that the gullies of Medina were flowing with alcohol which people threw out as a result of listening to a caller calling the instruction of Allah that alcohol is prohibited. Subhanallah. Look at how those who had it in their mouths spat it out. Those who had it in their containers spat it out. Whatever, or, or should I say poured it out. Whatever they had had, they poured it out. Look at how they did not look at how much I'm going to lose. What might happen? Hey, there's 200 liters here. Perhaps I could sell it to those people of the book. And perhaps this, nothing of that nature. Threw it out immediately. These were Sahaba of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.
This was the prohibition of alcohol as well as gambling. Now one might ask when the Quran says that gambling and alcohol, there is some goodness and mostly harm. Why was that said? It's a good question. So if you open the books of Tafsir, you find a point. At the time, what the Bedouin Arabs used to do, whenever they gambled, they knew that this is wrong because 500 people are putting perhaps a gold coin each. And one man goes away with everything the rest of them lost. So actually more people lose than gain. And the one who gains for your interest, and I have done a study, it's not so difficult these days with Sheikh Google so near. If you look at all those who have won huge lotteries on the globe, their families have been destroyed within a short space of time. And a lot of them have died drunkards and people who, are, who have really suffered because that is cursed money. It is cursed to the degree. It's not from your sweat. You are taking risks. You are eating other people's monies. And if those who take part in these lottos on a monthly basis have to save that money for two or three years, it becomes as big as one of the prizes. Anyway, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding and may he open our doors. What they used to do at the time, as soon as they win, they give out the amount to charity. They used to give out the amount to the poor, to the charity. And this is why some of the scholars say that this was the little goodness that they used to talk about up to today. There are people who tell you, let me take part in the lottery. If I win, I'll go and give it to a charity. Why should we say this? And why should we even do it? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us goodness. You really want to give a charity? Give your own wealth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala open our doors. Something else that had happened also in the third year of Hijrah, very important. The rules of inheritance were laid down. For your information, at that particular time, just before this, women were inherited. Someone dies, they would inherit the wife. Someone else, for example, owed someone money, the daughter would be paid. Someone else, for example, had a problem with someone and they would give their sister or their daughter and so on. When they died, this is what would happen. And these women were treated like commodities. And they were never ever spoken about in terms of the wealth that the men had had. They weren't even allowed to own anything of value. It was to be used for the men. That's it. When Islam came, it allowed individual ownership. A woman can own and that is her property. And that's it. Subhanallah. No one has a say in it besides herself. Obviously, she can be guided if she's doing something wrong. But if she would like, that's her money. Nobody can usurp it from her. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant our women protection as well. Sometimes from our own evil. Sometimes we are the, the culprits and we are the ones who oppress our own women. So at this stage, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses declaring that eight categories of women shall inherit wealth and only four categories of men shall inherit wealth. So if you look at the number of categories of men who inherit, four of them. And if you look at the number of categories of women who inherit, eight categories. And on top of that, the largest shares to be given are to be given to women. So you have a thuluthan, which means two thirds. Two-thirds is given to whom? Open the books which explain inheritance. Open the Quran and you will find two-thirds is only used where women are in the picture. Subhanallah. It's never used for men. Another one. 50% of all wealth the husband gets if the wife has left behind no children. But in the case of a single daughter, she collects 50% of what her father has left or her mother has left. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us a deep understanding. Now, one might ask these laws of inheritance, how were they laid down? If we look at how they were laid down, Allah says, you, O man, have no choice regarding how your wealth shall be divided after you die. You have no choice. The wealth is ours. It belonged to us. We lent it to you for a while. Once you die, we will decide how it will be distributed. That is the law of the Quran. The only thing Allah has given me and you, Allah says up to 33%, you can give anyone whom we have not given. So if Allah has given someone, you cannot increase or decrease. Never. And if Allah has not given someone from 33%, you can actually write down a will to say, I'd like to give this person so much. The rest of it, 
It's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He decides. So whether you got along with your son or not, or whether your daughter listened to you or not, they will definitely get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's a share. Unless they have engaged in a deed which prohibits them from the share, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala safeguard us such as murder and so on. In that particular case, they will be blocked from receiving. So this is why we need to know, all of us, and many Muslims don't know this for some reason, it's in the Quran, very loud and clear that Allah has decreed these as shares. Now, there is one other point we need to speak about. And that is, why is it that it seems that women get half of that of a male? The answer is, do you know, women actually get more than a male. The male is a guardian. He is supposed to look after the closest females to him. And every female is to be looked after in Islam, in terms of food, clothing and accommodation by her closest male relative, either the husband or the adult son or the father or the brothers or the uncles. If a woman has you as her closest male relative, you are sinful if you don't provide her with food, clothing and accommodation. Subhanallah, that is Islam. So women must be taken care of by their closest male relatives. That's the law. So why then do they need any wealth? The truth is they don't. They don't need it. Allah gave them as a token. Just in case me and you don't look after them. Subhanallah. Amazing. So when a man gets out of $75,000, if a man gets 50,000 and his sister gets 25,000 from the 50,000 that man has to look after his wife, his children and his family members as well as his own sister from the 50,000. So it's divided into approximately eight people and the 25,000 she got it's hers to save to be happy to go mashallah now and again somewhere and to be able to spend a little bit of money. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant our women an understanding. Wallahi Islam has honored them and raised them far above any other religion could have ever raised them. And Allah has given them dignity and Allah has given them a position. The difficulty is sometimes we as men do not even know the position that is granted to our women. And sometimes not only do we not look after them, but we cheat them out of their share of inheritance. We don't even speak about it here past and we don't even give them their share and yet sometimes we are sitting with everything may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala safeguard us and grant us ease and goodness inshallah tomorrow we will look at more of what was revealed in that particular year and we will go into the following year when there were several other skirmishes that took place and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us protection in the same way that he protected Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his companions and we ask Allah to grant us jannah until we meet again wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabina Muhammad subhanallah bihamdihi subhanaka Allahumma bihamdik nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen ar-rahman ar-rahim maliki 